This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The 2020 uprisings for racial justice sparked many questions about the violence that police have wrought on black and brown communities for generations. It also sparked on a nationwide level via the slogan defund the police. the radical idea of abolishing police altogether while many books have been written on the problems of policing to make a case for abolition there are few that actually tackle what abolition could look like one of them is a new work by my guest geo mar geo mar is a visiting associate professor at the department of political science at vassar college and senior research fellow at the global center for advanced studies he's the author of five books including we created chavez decolonizing dialectics building the commune spirals of revolt and now his latest book which he joins me to discuss a world without police how strong communities make cops obsolete welcome to the program geo I'm so glad to be here. So let's first start with the fact that when we have had discussions around abolition, often it's seen as this radical idea. There is an underlying assumption built into our cultural fabric that of course we need cops. How could we even have a world without cops because otherwise we would have chaos there would be no safety who would you call in case of an emergency i imagine that that's a question that you often face certainly um, but we should also remember that uh, you know the first wave of abolitionism where abolition gets its name in other words the abolition of slavery the same could have been said slavery slavery was felt to be natural um by large segments of the american population it was unquestioned by large large segments of the south in particular and it wasn't until a very compressed period around and before the civil war uh that people began to shift their perspectives radically and that's what we're talking about today is really beginning to shift that perspective even more than it already has um and when you do so you begin to denaturalize institutions like slavery and today like police uh, and prisons what that means is to begin to think differently to think about what the world could or would look like without police to think about what the conditions for a world without police would look like who would be called precisely that question um what your you know the structure of community would look like what the relationship between us and our neighbors would look like and we are unable fundamentally to to think seriously about those questions in the world that we have in a world that is structured around the police in which police are seen as the solution uh, to every social problem the persons that you call when you have any kind of conflict any kind of violence um suffer any kind of theft um these are questions that need to be asked but it's it is it is primarily by beginning to ask them that we can begin to imagine and think differently about what the world would look like and uh, how does white supremacy play a role in maintaining this myth that the police are absolutely necessary there are people who the police do keep safe certainly um and you know the the relationship between white supremacy and the police goes all the way back you know as many people have noted rightly the police have some of their most proximate origins in slave patrols in sort of white mobs and white vigilantes in the kind of people uh you know who who killed Ahmed Arbery um in the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world and between the police and sort of white vigilantes there's always been um this kind of uh tight relationship but on a more fundamental level um you know as you point to I think quite rightly people experience policing very different um people in wealthier well-resourced neighborhoods experience policing very differently in fact they don't 
interact with the police nearly as often as people in over-policed, hyper-policed uh, neighborhoods in which the police enact repression uh, and violence every day. And so the, the, you know, the racial divide on policing is very, very real. And we see it in the consequences. We know that the police don't protect communities of color. They inflict huge amounts of violence on them. And what I try and show in the book is there's actually far more communities that are left unprotected by the police. Um, people who, who are uh, you know, unhoused living on the street are subject to immense amounts of police violence. Uh, women are not protected by the police. They're actually the objects of police violence as well people suffering mental health crises, poor people. There are so many communities that even, you know, that even might believe that they're protected by the police. But when you look at the concrete facts, they really aren't. So you write in your book, as we will see, the police don't actually help. They don't prevent violence and they don't make any measurable contribution to public safety. If anything, what the police are most adept at is eating up billions of dollars in resources that could be repurposed to build truly secure communities. And of course, that was the um, sentiment captured by the idea of defund the police when Black Lives Matter, other racial justice organizations put this call out by defund the police. They meant fund social services, fund those things that make our communities strong, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, if we can sort of statistically demonstrate, for example, that the police do not make communities safer, we actually can't statistically point to what the world would look like in, in a far more ambitious way if we withdrew those funds from the police and dedicated them to building more e egalitarian society and dedicated them on a sort of fundamental and primary level toward um, early intervention to prevent violent conflict in communities, right? Or social welfare programs or employment programs, education programs, the kind of things that poor communities are lacking and that as a result lead to the kind of activities that are you know that are closely closely associated with uh, intra-community uh, violence and when we talk about making police obsolete you know this is more than just abolishing the police abolishing means tearing down an institution as angela davis has said very clearly when it comes to prisons uh, to make an institution obsolete is to create the kind of world in which that institution makes absolutely no sense so in a world of equals in a world that is not structured by socioeconomic uh, inequalities vast inequalities in which people are not homeless are not going hungry um, they have work they have housing in a world that is not structured by racial inequality by gendered inequality qualities, why would we need the police? Because precisely what the police do is to uphold and patrol those boundaries that divide our societies. So insofar as we're building more equal communities, um, and again, in the short term, directly targeting with community organization, the prevention of violence, we will begin to see through defunding that communities are getting safer, not more violent. You include the cases of Ahmad Arbery and Kyle Rittenhouse, who you just cited, Ahmad Arbery being, of course, the victim of violence um, in Georgia and Kyle Rittenhouse being the perpetrator of violence in Wisconsin. Those two trials wrapped up just as your book is coming out, uh, the trial of the killers of Ahmad Arbery, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, but neither of those actually directly involved police. So why are they part of the story? I mean, as I argue in the book, uh, you know, where you know the the system of policing is far broader than the institution of uniformed police. Um, you know, when we say that Ahmed Arbery was not targeted by the police, he was still being policed. He was being surveilled. He was being surrounded, chased, pursued by self-deputized police. In other words, white vigilante. And when we say vigilante, we need to be absolutely clear about this. We're not trying to draw a line between the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world and the police. Hal Rittenhouse wanted to be a cop. That was his goal uh, in life. 
And that was what he was doing when he picked up a weapon and went to Kush. Um, and the same can be said of the, of the murderers of Ahmed uh, Arbery. They were doing police work from the very beginning, more than 150 years ago. That has been the work of the police to oversee, to surveil, and to oppress uh, black and brown and poor uh, communities. That's what they were doing. They were doing the work of the police, whether they're called it, you know, a, or not. And we see the same thing in, in cases of sort of Trayvon Martin and many others who were actually killed by white vigilantes. We see it in a far broader system that involves district attorneys, that involves police, judges, that involves juries of, you know, of largely you know, white everyday citizens who either decide uh, to charge um, you know, the subjects of police violence, black and brown and poor people in particular, or decide not to press charges against officers or white vigilantes who have killed people uh, you know, unnecessarily. This is long been the complicity and we see it playing out in these cases as well. Let's dig into the meat of um, how police maintain their power. We see in city after city, um, because of course policing happens at the city level, we see, you know, often progressive DAs or mayors, people who we might imagine have power to hold the police accountable fail to do so. Um, New York City might be an example with Bill de Blasio uh, promising to take on the police. Of course, he himself was a problematic mayor in many other ways. But we see, you know, in Los Angeles, where I live, Eric Garcetti failing to have much power over the LAPD. You point out that police unions, and others have pointed this out too, are such a huge part of the issue. So how do police unions maintain police power? I think if people knew what police unions do every day, they would be uh, utterly scandalized because what they do is to bully local officials, to bully state level officials into um, building the police into uh, our life uh, every day and, and building you know, their role into city budgets, extorting more money every year, ever increasing budgets, ever increasing salaries. Um, and on top of that, the fundamental thing that police negotiate for, whether it be the local, state or federal level, is impunity. They don't want to be held responsible uh, for the violence that they inflict um, on, you know, on the community. This is what police unions do. They do it by, uh, you know, building, you know, by negotiating uh, binding relations, you know, binding arbitration on the, on the local level, um, negotiating directly with city officials. Sometimes this is enshrined by state law, as it is in Pennsylvania, for example. They do it through state-level laws called Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights, which are special rights, not equal rights, special rights for police officers that everyday citizens don't uh, enjoy. This is the kind of thing that makes it very difficult to push back uh, on police power. And when, uh, whether it's elected leaders or private citizens begin to push back, what they find is actually even more terrifying. They find threats of violence, coercion. Um, you know, there are cities that have attempted to push back on police power and city officials, elected officials, have had their tires slashed, have been threatened, you know, with violence. Um, there have been cities that had to declare bankruptcy and financial emergencies to even begin to think about pushing back on police budgets. And of course, de Blasio, who I have no love for, um, is a great example of, of, you know, of someone who, without even really beginning to uh, seriously threaten police power, um, was targeted, was harassed, his children were harassed, the city was, uh, you know, bullied essentially to give the police whatever they want, because this is what the police do. And they operate, as I argue in the book, as a gang, as a protection uh, racket that doesn't actually protect. Um, and, and this is precisely part of the reason that they need to be uh, abolished, because there is no possibility of reforming the way that the police operate. Let's talk about 
Minneapolis, where your book actually opens, which was the flashpoint, the, the epicenter, if you will, of the uprisings in 2020 around uh, racial justice and uh, trying to hold police accountable. Uh, you point out in your book, you, you point out the that moment when a very angry group of protesters took on police power in a collective way, in a way that was quite violent, in a way that maybe indicated their, the desperation that they feel from being unable to break police power. Why is Minneapolis such an important example? And then all of those um, incidents and, and uh, policies that attempted to be enacted in the city afterwards in terms of defunding the police, uh, what, what, is, what is the example of Minneapolis teachers? Um, I mean, I think as we know very well that uh, when the citizens of Minneapolis stood up um, with bravery, uh, with uh, dedication, um, you know, they, they proved, you know, to the world how serious this question was. They helped to spark rebellions and resistance uh, nationwide. For example, where I live in Philadelphia, there was a mass rebellion in response to the Minneapolis rebellions um, and global uh, responses, the tearing down of statues of colonizers, of, you know, of slave masters worldwide, um, all based on the brave example of what happened in the streets of, of Minneapolis. And yes, the burning down of the third precinct was a great example of that. Why? Because in polls immediately afterward, the majority of those polled said that it was, it was a pretty reasonable uh, response, a very direct response to the infliction of violence on the Black community um, of Minneapolis. Now, what we've seen since has been the question of how do we make this a reality? Immediately, this proposal, which was backed up by the City Council of Minneapolis, was stalled. It was stalled by an unelected commission you know, that uh, oversees the you know, reform of the charter in the city. And we saw finally one year later, after the city was bullied for a full year into accepting uh, the police, into not voting, you know, not voting to abolish the police, the city still one year later almost voted to dismantle the Minneapolis police. And I think we should take that as a pretty powerful indication um, that, you know, uh, that change is, is, is necessary and is, um, and is coming soon. Um, but the, the main thing is to understand that, you know, Minneapolis also comes at the head of and, and as the culmination of long waves of resistance, you know, uh, we're talking about, you know, Trayvon Martin, you know, of course, we're talking about Oscar Grant, we're talking about, you know, in the, you know, in the you know, immediate context, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, um, and we're talking about a moment in which organizers who have been struggling against the police for years now have developed a new language um, for the defunding and ultimately the abolition of the police and push that language into the mainstream. This is precisely what's new about Minneapolis, and this is why we're talking about uh, defunding today. It is only, and this is a consistent phenomenon, it is only because of the bravery of people in the streets um, that we're actually even having these conversations in the mainstream today. And of course, we have to talk about diverting funding from police towards strengthening communities as part of what abolition requires. So um, what did Minneapolis offer in terms of a teaching moment for other uh, localities, for other cities, and even for a future Minneapolis with perhaps a different city council or a different dynamic around police unions? What can be learned about doing that work? Because as you were saying, there was a moment when the institution of slavery seemed you know, accepted and it was unimaginable that it would no longer be. And, you know, it is possible to imagine a world without police and 
stepping into that requires the the money, right? That the money be diverted. Absolutely, and again, if the if the historic experience of uh, the abolition of slavery teaches us anything, it's that abolition is always a reconstruction. Otherwise, it will fail. And with the failure of reconstruction after the Civil War, uh, you know, many former slaves were uh, pushed directly back into the kinds of relations. Um, that had existed uh, under slavery, the kind of organized white supremacy, the kind of economic exploitation. Why? Because you do need to build that alternative world. Now, Minneapolis was very interesting is that here was a moment in which um, it was not a question of, of doing the slow building of alternatives. It was a question of the immediate potential to abolish the police. But what did communities on the ground do? Very quickly, they organized a security perimeter. They organized a security committee to keep the protest zone safe um, without the police in Minneapolis. Very quickly, people took over a, a hotel and turned it into collective housing. Very quickly, in other words, people began to, um, to, to catch up with what was happening on the very public uh, level and began to build those alternatives as quickly as possible. What's been happening since is kind of the inverse. People nationwide have been building these alternatives, have been developing alternatives to the police at the same time that they're pushing defund efforts in cities, that they're attempting to withdraw those funds because what we need to do simultaneously is to build autonomous alternatives and to demand that those you know those millions and indeed billions of dollars that are being dedicated to the police be handed back over to communities so the communities can use them democratically on the grassroots level to build real communities again of equals communities of safety communities of, of uh, collective security uh, in which people don't feel vulnerable and so don't need to call the police Let's take on an issue that you discuss in your book where the um, reformist versus abolitionist uh, kind of uh, breakdown sometimes happens, which is when we want to hold police accountable, you know, those police who are perpetrators of violence, we often end up applauding when the criminal justice system holds them accountable, which is, of course, quite rare when that does happen. But when it does happen, uh, many of us, even those who might support abolition, feel at least there is the same standard being applied to police versus the rest of us. And therefore, it is a step in the right direction. Where do you fall on this issue of seeing, you know, sort of rejoicing in the fact that the criminal justice system, when pushed, might occasionally hold police in, uh, accountable for violence, hold them to the same standards as some of us are held to? Certainly. I mean, when the murderers of Ahmed Arbery were convicted, that did not represent justice. Were Kyle Rittenhouse convicted and sent to prison, that would not be justice. At the same time, I think it's important to understand that, as you put it quite rightly, people do react to the fact that you know that poor communities of color are not given the same levels of access to just to so-called justice by the system and they do uh, of course react angrily when that's not the case when charges are not you know pressed and they do demand i think quite rightly um that you know that people like derek chauvin be put on trial um, the question for me fundamentally is more about, you know, what kind of structural responses um, you know, can be developed and what kind of movement power are we building, are we developing through these cases? I, I don't think anyone in Minneapolis thinks that convicting Derek Chauvin was justice being served. I think people realize that there is a long path ahead. Um, and that that path involves a whole range of other organizing and other you know processes and of course this demand the the proposal to dismantle the police is a key uh, part of this well so, then what uh, you would know, again justice look yeah. like would it be no more 
future George Floyd's being killed, right? No, justice, I mean, justice for George Floyd's family is that he would not be killed, that he Mm. would not have been targeted, that he would not have been subject to that uh, violence. And it's the building of a world in which this is not going to happen in the same way that it does, which is necessarily a structural task. Again, I don't think we can blame people for rejoicing. I don't think we can blame people for demanding some level of equal justice, even if we know um, that the system is not going to actually provide justice. The justice is going to come outside of that system. The justice is gonna come through the radical transformation of that system. And again, we're not against all changes. Um, You know, there are of course, great abolitionist uh, scholars and organizers who have developed, uh, you know, criteria for saying which changes, which reforms are potentially radical, potentially abolitionist, can we support, right? We support real oversight that weakens police power. We support defunding if it really withdraws funding from the police. We support any change that withdraws police from communities and limits and minimizes interaction uh, with those communities. Um, What we cannot support are reforms that put more money in the hands of the police. We cannot support reforms that give the police more power to investigate themselves, uh, for example. Uh, you know, and here the, the, the uh, broad range of reforms that we're often told will be the magical solution to police violence are, you know, are absolutely the opposite. Mm-hmm. Body cameras do not help with police right. violence. Um, you know, so-called community policing is the destruction uh, of communities. It, it doesn't help with police violence. The real solutions come from that community organically Uh, pushing the police out and taking over the maintenance of its own safety and security. So reforms that are steps toward abolition in a very clear way, chipping away at police power and funding are in service of abolition and anything that goes in the opposite direction but cast as a reform is something that abolitionists often will, will call out. Yes. It's a question of power. Um, at the same time, even those reforms, we need to be very wary because the system is prepared and, and always on the offensive, and, you, know, uh, you know, looking for ways to reincorporate even those changes into a new and, you know, a newly functioning system. So abolition really is a total project. It's something that demands a radically different world. It gains and derives its power from that demand, from insisting that we focus on that uh, on that horizon. And yet, concretely, every day we do need to be fighting for changes. So we need to prioritize those changes that really transform the structure of power, that strengthen communities, and that weaken the police. Gio, you wrote a book about uh, Venezuela. You have written. Uh, you've you've actually taught, I understand, in Caracas, uh, capital of Venezuela. What did you learn about how some communities on the ground in a very different country might offer some lessons for abolitionists, abolitionists here in the United States? As I argue in the book, we need to understand abolition, uh, you know, in a global way. We need to understand policing as a global phenomenon that's directly connected to U.S. global imperialism, global power that's connected to global capitalism and the ways that it manifests globally. Um, and for me, as I explain, uh, you know, in, in the book, these never seem separate to me. Um, when I was you know, living in Caracas and studying grassroots self-defense movements that were taking over their community that were pushing the police out, that were building collective democratic structures for their own self-government. I was also going back and forth to Oakland, California, of course, the birthplace of the Black Panther Party, which was, again, the Black Panther Party for self-defense, which sought not only to, uh, you know, to oversee activities of the police, but also to provide for the social welfare of the community, 
also to make sure that, uh, you know, that elders got to the bus safely. These were all parts of building a community fabric that would be capable of existing without the police. And I think that is a global struggle. You also in your book link the abolition of police with the abolition of ICE, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and borders. Why does that one naturally follow into the other two? The expansion historically of the U.S. border has been a police project. It's been a project which, again, you know, uh, you know, linking back to the previous elements of the conversation, is connected to the expansion of white vigilantes, um, settlers taking over territory, enacting violence on indigenous peoples and genocide, um, and then using that as a pretext for the annexation, the seizure of those territories, the seizure of northern Mexico. This is all an imperial project, and it's a policing project. And it's a project of settler colonialism. They, they emerged at the same time. And of course, there's no way, even if we didn't understand that historical background, which makes it perfectly clear, there's no way to ignore the, you know, the dramatic expansion of, uh, you know, of border policing on the southern U.S. border in particular, but also globally. And to understand, you know, the, and, you know, there's no possibility of ignoring the dramatic expansion of, uh, you know, of border detention. Uh, and so there, we, we gain nothing um, from separating these phenomena and the, the various movements that spread across the country a couple of years ago, the abolish ICE, occupy ICE type movements um, were, you know, very, uh, you know, important in, in pointing out these connections, which have been deepening in the years since between um, Black Lives Matter organizations and border justice organizations and abolition, border abolition organizations. The reality is the divisions that we suffer, that we uh, struggle against within um, you know, the, the body of U.S. citizenry, in other words, divisions along the racial lines, along lines of economic inequality, are very similar to the border uh, as itself a division of communities, of poor communities. They function the same way. They're used in the same ways by imperial and capitalist power. These are the kind of divisions and, you know, and barriers that we need to overcome. And again, when we're targeting the police, we need to be targeting ICE. Not only ICE as a relatively new uh, institution and phenomenon, we need to be talking about abolishing border patrol and and yes, we need to be talking about abolishing the border because the border itself, much like the police, claims to be preventing violence when it really is the origin of creating a great deal of violence. And we've seen the hundreds of thousands dead, not to mention the tens of thousands who died attempting to cross through the desert um, that lay as a result of, you know, of this violent institution that is the border. Gio, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find out more about the work that you do? Um, Verso Books is where you can find A World Without Police. And my next book is called Anti-Colonial Eruptions. And it, it, uh, you know, it comes out in March. Thank you again. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Sonali. My guest has been Gio Mar, visiting associate professor at the Department of Political Science at Master College and a senior research fellow at the Global Center for Advanced Studies. He's the author of five books, including We Created Chavez, Decolonizing Dialectics, Building the Commune, and Spirals of Revolt. And we've been discussing his latest book, A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Are You With Sonali?